everybody it's your girl kdt and today is launch day i'm so excited after you listen to this episode please head over to our website inmyshoestoday.com that's www.inmyshoestoday.com hit that shop button and order your copy of the take care of you self-care journal we start pre-orders today And we have a little promo for those who are going to pre-order and that'll be going on for a week or two. So please head on over and do that. It was a great tie-in with this episode. We'll be talking with Natasha Pierre today about um, taking care of yourselves, uh, protecting your mental health anxiety that we're dealing with during this time. She is the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in the Tampa Bay area where I'm from. And so um, I thought pairing that with the uh, launch of our self-care journal was a perfect tie-in so after you've had a chance to listen to some great advice from natasha please go on over and get your copy of the journal want people to be able to have them to give to people for christmas and to have for themselves thanks so much for the support you guys enjoy this episode Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we're talking about the issues we're facing every day. And I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson. And I have a repeat guest with me today. So excited to have the chance to speak with Natasha Pierre again with NAMI. So I'll let her introduce herself and then I'll tell you guys a little bit about why I wanted to have her back on the show today. So hi, Natasha, how are you? Just refresh everybody's memory about um, your connection with NAMI and a little bit about you. Thank you so much, Karen. Again, thank you for having me. I am Natasha Pierre. I am currently the executive director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Hillsborough County affiliate. So we are the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization. And for this county, we provide the mental health education, support, advocacy, and public awareness so that everyone that's affected by mental illness can really build better lives. I've been with NAMI in various capacities over several years, well over 10 years, and my connection to them began with my own mental health journey. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2, ultradian, post-traumatic stress, generalized anxiety, and EDNOS, which is an eating disorder not otherwise specified. So my work with NAMI is not just work. It's not just a job. It's a personal mission that came about me seeking information to support my own mental wellness. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I've always admired that you're very transparent about your story. Um, I try to do that with my own journey. Um, Obviously, people who listen to this podcast know I have a daughter who has a mental illness Um, And it can be trying just as a caregiver as well. And so uh, part of why I wanted to have you back today was I know for me and I'm sure other people and friends of mine that I've talked to, there is so much going on right now. Um, You know, I feel my anxiety level rising when that wasn't ever really an issue I had in the past. And so I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how we can deal with that, um, with, you know, living our just daily lives, people are going back to work, et cetera. And now you have the pandemic and now you have social unrest. It's just a lot. And so um, just talking a little bit about some advice that you could give. So let's start there. What tips would you give for someone who is feeling that anxiety level beginning to rise with everything that's going on right now? Well, the first tip that I have is one that I use for myself, which is self-honesty. 
recognizing what you feel and not judging it, just letting it be what it is. I also advocate for using the correct, uh, for using correct terminology for what you're feeling. If you are happy and then sad, it doesn't necessarily mean you're bipolar. It just means you're just having an interesting sort of day. And for many people, what they're experiencing right now, there are nerves, there is anxiety, and there's panic. And for the world, 2020 has given us all, diagnosis or not, many reasons to be anxious about what the future is going to be, what the future is going to bring. For a season uh, earlier this year, I woke up every day like, okay, what is it going to be today? Because there was just so much happening and still happening. So the first step is to be honest with where you are, what you feel, how you're thinking. Start from there because you won't be able to create a a, a pathway to, to peace without understanding exactly where you are and giving a name and describing what it is that you need. Is it that you need to turn off the TV? That isn't beneficial for everyone. Is it that you need to step away from social media? That may be it. Is it that you need to do a lot more self-care? That may be it. But until we are all honest with how we're feeling and what the stressors, where the stressors and triggers are in our life, we're not going to be able to create the peace that we actually want to manifest. And how can you tell the difference? Like, you know, people say, oh, I feel depressed and maybe don't really know what that terms mean. So you talked about, you know, having nerves, anxiousness, panic. How do we know how to label or put a name to what we're feeling? Well, you know, the way that I describe it, you know, if you are going to do a presentation tomorrow and this could get you a grant or you're going to a job interview, it's human to feel nerves before an event or an experience that you're looking forward to or you're unsure of the outcome. That's that's human. Anxiety and panic, those are where the, the diagnoses come in. You know, I shared many times that there's some days, weeks, months that I just live with a state of anxiety. It's not that I'm accustomed to it, but I've learned how to work through it so it doesn't interfere with my day. But I do have the elevated awareness and the elevated heart rate. And I'm a slightly, you know, hyper vigilant and aware of everything. And then there's panic that absolutely impacts and can derail your day. At the start of this pandemic, I, you know, I was hearing about everyone being anxious and concerned. I didn't feel anything at all until I had to go out and had to wear a mask. And I had panic attacks from wearing the mask. Of course, I still wear it, because I know how to deal with those panic attacks, but it's a combination of not getting enough air through the mask. It is just the awareness that there is an unknown, unseen uh, enemy in the air. It's it's people being too close. It's a it's just a lot. And I was having, you know, I had panic attacks in stores. But what do I do? I go out in the car. I get some fresh air, I ground, 
we've got to give names the appropriate name to what we're feeling because then we can chart our course to to wellness, to treatment, to recovery, to what it is that we need. Are we sad with 2020? From January, we've had many reasons to be sad. We've lost, you know, Kobe Bryant. We've lost many notable uh, elected officials this year, celebrities. We've lost over 200,000 people in this nation alone. That's parents and spouses, children, siblings, friends, uncles, aunties, neighbors. People are sad. Couple that with unemployment and with a, a pandemic and a shutdown. Yeah, there's increased depression. And when we name it, now we get to create the pathway to actually ushering in some peace. And I've noticed on your uh, social media, you've been doing, uh, I've watched quite a few of them, several videos a week, um, you know, just giving people some tips. And and when did you decide to start doing that? And was it just out of a need to kind of, it was therapeutic for you? Or had you been hearing from people who said, you know, I really don't know how to deal with some of what I'm feeling? All of the above. I have a, there's a, a page that I follow on Instagram and they were going to do a 30 day reels challenge. And I said, you know what? I want to do something different. And every day for every day of the 30 days, they give us an assignment, a theme for creating a reel. And I wanted to use that as a way to educate people, not only on what I do, but really what of mental illness and anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, how that would look. My goal is to foster empathy and compassion. You know, sometimes, you know, people are ignorant to what someone else, me and others with diagnoses experience and go through on a day-to-day basis. And I wanted to share how that looks. So I've got several more that I need to post and I'm, I'm going to keep posting one of the ones that I'm working on right now is what is it like to live with bipolar disorder? How does that look? And I'm pleased to do it because I know that I defy the stereotype. I don't look like mental illness. I don't look in quotes crazy. I don't look like dysfunction. I don't look like what the media and Hollywood portray mental illness to be. And And that's a good thing because everyone doesn't look like Hollywood and everyone isn't dangerous. And so I'm going to continue doing these videos because the feedback has been tremendous. People weren't aware that it's possible to live a healthy, fulfilling, normal life with a diagnosis. And what... I know people, you know, you're you're the executive director of NAMI here in our area. Um, I know, you know, just have friends who feel comfortable reaching out to you. What are they telling you is there that they're struggling with right now? What are you hearing people say? I've heard so many things. Um, I've heard from veterans who are because of the stillness, because they don't have the traditional outlets that they normally had. They are remembering combat. I've heard from children who are, you know, concerned about returning to school. I've heard from mothers who are just simply overwhelmed. 
with being wife and mother and employee and teacher. And they feel bad. They feel, you know, a little bit judged because if you're not able to be your child's teacher and do your job, there's got to be something wrong with you. I'm hearing from people who are retired and are financially comfortable, but are having a tough time because they're unable to see their grandchildren. There are people who are, again, because of the stillness, remembering past traumas, rapes that went unreported. So there are people, you know, I haven't heard of anyone who has not been affected by the pandemic in one way or another. You know, I don't think COVID has created any mental illness. I think it has just shed a light on what, on on the state of the nation's mental health. It's almost as if we, you know, we did a thermometer check and it reveals that we're sick. And part of that is due to us never having been taught how to take care of our mental and emotional well-being. We know how to take care of our physical bodies, the gym and vitamin and weight loss industry. They're booming. You know, we're told how to go to the dentist and, you know, get your physical twice a year. We're told about all of those things, how to take care of our financial health. But where's the conversation about your mental and emotional well-being? And when those two things are out of, out of, out of whack, it affects every other area of our life. So what we're seeing in the nation right now is the result of a nation of people who have never been taught to pause, never been taught to sit still, never been taught to take account of what it is that they're truly feeling and experiencing. I spoke yesterday about the importance of self-honesty. Where are you? It's almost as if you go to a, to a mall. If I'm standing by sharper image and I want to get to the food court, but I don't know where it is, I've got to find that kiosk with the map, find that red dot that's going to show me where I am so I can chart my course. Well, that's the same thing we have to do. Where are you? How are you feeling? Are you sleeping more or less than you did before? Are you eating more or less than you did? Have you lost interest in activities that you once enjoyed? Where has the change occurred in your life? Let's be honest about it. And now let's move forward with charting your course to get you to the place of wellness and wholeness that you desire. And we haven't been taught that. So now is the time for us to do it. The first best time (laughs) to deal and address mental health is before a crisis, of course. The second best time is today. Thank you so much for that. I know that for me, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, I have had to uh, really kind of um, get on a diet with my news, for lack of a better way to put it, because some of the stuff, it's just a lot. I mean, on top of the pandemic, we now have this social unrest that's going on, you know, the heightened awareness for people of color, the hate that some people are spouting. It's just uh, mind boggling to me. And so I know you talked a bit, a little bit about what you've had to do for your own mental health. Can you go into that a little bit more? Absolutely. You know, I am a black woman 
I am a, uh, I was born outside of the United States. So for, you know, at college, I was considered an international student. I was born in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. We are a U.S. territory, but I've also been asked if I'm, you know, legal here in the United States. I have a diagnosis. I have a Black father, a Black brother. I have Black male friends. I am Black. And, you know, for the purposes of me, me this conversation, I want to make clear that it wasn't until that I got to the United States that I knew I was Black. All my life, I identified as Caribbean. I was born in St. Thomas. My parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. I was Caribbean. I was a Trin, Trinidad and Tobago Tomian, a Trinbagonian Tomian. So I didn't have the race consciousness until I came to the United States and began to study and research on my own. I am a first-generation American. My parents are Americans now, but they weren't born in on U.S. soil. So I'm very sensitive to comments about Black, about immigrants, about women. I'm very sensitive to it. I'm sensitive to what's happening to people, whether or not I have identified with Black all my life or not. And in May and June, especially with the events of George Floyd, I gave myself permission to do what was best for my mental health. And the way that looked was to disconnect from anyone on, and everyone on social media that had a, an opinion or a viewpoint that was not aligned with my own. I am, I empowered myself to recognize that my social media is my social media and that what comes through is, is what I want to see. And I wasn't going to allow, uh, jeopardize my mental health because of a connection that was a year, two, three, five, ten 10 years old. I simply wasn't going to do that. And so I disconnected from a lot of people on social media. I, I distanced myself from a lot of people personally and professionally, and I was unapologetic about it. You know, Karen, when you have been through as many things that I have been through with your mental health, you hold your peace in regard. And I take personally anything that threatens my peace because for one person, having their peace threatened maybe, maybe one night, you know, they miss sleep. That's not what it is for me. That's not what it is for one in four people in this nation. It can mean uh, their life being derailed. And so anyone who had questions about whether George Floyd, you know, what he did, I really didn't care. I actually went through my social media. I searched for key terms that I know people who had opposing viewpoint may have in their posts, and unapologetically, I deleted them. You know, all lives matter was one term. Um, anything on either side that was too strong, I simply disconnected. On Instagram, I unfollowed many accounts. Uh, I had to get off of Twitter because I couldn't filter. That's the way that I protected my peace. I 
the news, I, I couldn't watch it. To this day, many of the cases that we've seen this year, I have not seen the footage, and that was by design. I don't want to see that. It's enough for me to live in this body, with this mind, in this world, than for me to also have images that would disturb my peace. And, and, and truly, Karen, that's the level of intentionality that I want people to take when it comes to their mental health. So from self-honesty, we go into self-awareness, knowing what it is that, that frustrates you, that disturbs your peace, that interrupts your sleep, that makes you uneasy, knowing what that is. And then self-advocacy, asking for or taking the steps necessary to safeguard. That means setting boundaries. That means me blocking people from being able to send me direct messages because the videos that they send are displeasing to me. That's me having the conversations about the way that I want people to engage with me. That's me letting people know, thank you for the information, but please do not add me to any group text. Please do not reply all. These are the things that I do to safeguard my peace. And some people may say, Natasha, that's going too far. Well, what's too far? What's too far if it means that I, uh, you know, that I know I don't have to go see my therapist or psychiatrist, that I don't have to increase a dose of medicine, that I can actually sleep peacefully at night? What's too far? I get to determine what's too far. And for your listeners, you all get to determine what's too far and set those boundaries. What are we not going to discuss? One of the things, Karen, that happened immediately after George Floyd is a lot of people knew because of my work with NAMI, because of my my own personal mental health advocacy, because I am a Black woman, many people were reaching out to me to discuss what I was not ready to discuss. As a black woman, I had to process what I heard just happened. And for anyone that was not black, it, it, for me, it felt like a, a, like a death, a family death. I need to process this with my family first before I can give a statement to the public. And so I had to set those boundaries of what I was willing to talk about, speaking when I was ready. And I did share on social media that I would share when my silence um, needed to end. I would share when my words would actually be impactful and contribute to the conversation and not take away from it. There is so much to unpack in that that I agree with. I mean, really, because I, you know, I really felt compelled. I'm actually working on um, a journal that I want to share with people about self-care, because what you're talking about to me all goes back to that self-care piece that I don't think uh, women especially do enough of, you know, feeling like you have to justify why, you know, what is wrong with hitting that block. I've had to do it as well not watching something, deciding that I need to set the boundaries for what makes me comfortable, happy, fulfilled, and and not feeling like it's selfish. You know what I mean? I can still be a great mom, 
a great, you know, daughter, a great wife, but I have to create the space that makes it easy for me to function in. Um, you know, one of the things that I suggest in the journal is taking like a break from social media because, um, it's amazing what people feel empowered and emboldened these days to say. Um, so I definitely um, have had to do some of that myself, watching certain things on the news I just won't do um, because it's just too much. Uh, it's it's a lot to, to deal with and a lot um, to kind of take in. Um, and it's also interesting about your take on not feeling like you were Black until you got here. Why do you think that that is such a, issue of race in the United States, um, that we focus so much on that here? I think any, every negative emotion is rooted in fear. Every single one is rooted in, in fear. And, uh, you know, as a person who was born and raised outside of this nation, it is, I just cannot understand America's fascination with guns or their preoccupation with race. And I'm grateful. I'm truly grateful to be an American and grateful that I wasn't raised in a society where, where race was so important. On my island, we are a predominantly black island. We are, are proud, we're filled with culture. And fortunately for me and many people, who grew up there, everyone in a position of power looked like me. So I never, I wasn't raised with what I couldn't do. I was raised seeing black governors and senators, black police chief, black teachers, black everyone. I didn't know that my skin color would be an, an opt out for certain things until I got to the United States. And truth be told, I don't want to learn that. In the same way that I do not feel having a diagnosis disqualifies me from anything, my skin color doesn't as well. And I am aware of the social constructs that impact many people who do not act like me. This is a, a, a very real happening. You know, racism has infected just about every facet of life in America. And until we're ready to have conversations, constructive, courageous conversations, I, 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 I think this is going to continue. Relative to boundaries, one of the things that I decided very early on was that I'm not going to be the spokesperson for Black America relative to anything. I'm also not going to participate or take ownership of any person, any person's learning who isn't Black. That's not my responsibility. I am an educator and I would love to educate and Google is free. And so some people have made a point of debating and trying to get people to see and trying to get people to understand that's a hard boundary that I set. I'm not doing that. For anyone who can still say all lives matter as a response to Black Lives Matter, it's a personal choice for me to accept their stance, 
And it's also a personal choice for me to disconnect because it's not being said from a universal macro, God is love and loves everyone. It's a rebuttal to a statement of uh, inherent worth and value of a group of people of which I belong. And hard stop for me on feeling the need to argue. Oh, I'm, I don't engage in arguments. I don't engage in any arguments or debates. It's easier and easier on my, my peace and my mental and emotional well-being to simply disconnect. Have I had some people ask in earnest questions? Yes. I've even had many law enforcement professionals reach out to me for some, some clarity. And these are people who are black, white, Latino. Hey, can you help me understand this? Can you shed some light on? Can you, can you give me some perspective? And I'm happy to have those conversations, but I'm not doing it just to, you know, make a point and to smooth my ego. Collectively, as a nation, we are mentally ill in varying forms. And we, before we can move forward, we're going to have to recognize that and see where we are on the spectrum of mental illness. Where are we right now? If at any point in your life you feel the need to, to argue and to debate, that's just not healthy. It truly isn't. And it's not a practice that I, I engage in. And how long did it take you or how difficult was it for you to get to a place where you could say, you know what, I'm just not doing this. This isn't good for me. And it doesn't matter whether or not you agree. This is what I'm going to do, whether it works for you or not. It's been a journey. I think that it, it escalated um, or it was kind of fast forwarded beginning one year ago today. One year ago today was when I shared my mental health journey publicly for the very first time. And I think since then, I've been on a fast track. I was joking with some friends uh, this week and I said, you know, if you met me in January, you're going to need to update your Natasha software because I am not that person. If you met me in week one of September 2020, you're going to need to update your Natasha to the September 2020 week three version because that's how fast I feel I am evolving and taking control of my life. And how did this all come about? See, when you have a mental illness, when you can, when you recognize that you have just enough of your life, of your mind and control of your life to realize that you are losing your mind and losing control of your life, it's a very humbling and sobering reality. So for me, I had to rebuild my self-esteem to the point of recognizing that I am not defective. I'm not worthless simply because this is how I process stress or this is how I process the world or these are the symptoms and the experiences that I have. I had to rebuild my self-esteem and that took time. But last year when I shared publicly, I took back my power. And since then, it's been a journey of taking back power in every way possible. 
here's a boundary that I set. I don't allow people to engage in any form of manipulation or gaslighting with me. And here's why. My mind is a thing that I've questioned for over 25 years. So if I reach out to you and you tell me that you replied via email and you replied four times, but I know you didn't and you know you didn't, but it's a way to, you know, let you off the hook for forgetting. For the average person, Karen, that's not a big deal. But for me, who has questioned their mind and the state of their mind and their memory for over 25 years, I can't let that slide. I now, I've set a hard boundary that even if I don't call you out on the lie, it is a, it's a disconnect for me because you can lie about everything on the planet if you want to, but you can't lie about my mental health and the state of my mental health. I have hard boundaries. Um, just in this year alone, there are very few things that I'm doing on weekends. Very, very few. I, that's part of my self-care. I get to have a weekend too. Do not contact me before 9 a.m. Do not contact me after 6. The people who can typically don't. And I think one of the things, Karen, that we really need to do as a society, as a nation, is we need to respect other people's boundaries. And we also need to ask, in what way would you like me to engage? There's some people that I will have conversations with all day long. There's some people I prefer that you email me. There's some you know, people that I want you to text. And for me, I ask people how they would like to engage because everyone is busy. In a COVID-19 world, we are all fighting for space on everyone's calendars because just living in a pandemic takes up so much of our emotional and mental space that we need to be compassionate and flexible and we've gotta adapt and we've gotta pivot and recognize that whatever a person needs in that moment to safeguard their psychological, and emotional well-being, we need to let them have that. So tomorrow I may have even more boundaries, the next day even more. And I give people the freedom to do the same because that's what's necessary. And, you know, I'm subject to change. Everyone is subject to change. This came over time. I was a people pleaser especially when you live with a diagnosis, you, you're always fighting to ensure that people know that you're not just a diagnosis. You want people to see you and not just the illness. You want people to know that you have value and worth and, you know, I'm not crazy. Please like me. Please include me. I am grateful that I'm not there. And for people who may still be there, I'm not making that wrong. But for me, the work that I've done has been to get to a place where I'm not defined by a diagnosis. I'm not defined by past challenges. I'm not even defined by current challenges because I still have symptoms that I deal with. 
I'm not defined by that. And I'm not going to force anyone to, to believe me or to work with me. You know, one of the most important shifts that I've made is to, to be with my tribe, to be with people who think like me and feel like me. We do the same work. To, to look for connection and not just commonality. The work that I want to do in, in this world is not relegated only to one gender, one race, one people. And I need people around me whose thoughts are that expansive so that we can co-create in this world. Hope that answered your question. <laughs> Oh, it absolutely answered my question <laughs> um, because I think it is a hard space to get to, to where you are willing to have those boundaries and not worry about what other people think. Um, you know, not that you're not sensitive to other people's feelings, but it's just, this is what I need to do. And I was just curious as to what it took for you to get there so that, you know, people who are listening realize that it's okay to say, this is what I need to do for me, especially now with everything that we have going on. Um, you have to set those boundaries or you're, you'll just be an absolute wreck. And you um, have to assert yourself. I still have um, moments where people attempt to devalue my contribution based on how they receive me. And that's their personal problem. You know, I look at my life as an assignment. Every room that I walk in, every time that I have the opportunity to speak about mental health or my experience, I don't take that lightly. And I think that's the difference with me and, and, and perhaps other people, or, or maybe not. This isn't just a job for me. This isn't a fad. And next week I'm going to move on to, you know, um, asthma or the week after I'm going to move on to something else. This is my life. When I, I became a mental health advocate, not because I looked through a career book, I became an advocate and an educator for my own self-preservation because I was suicidal, because I wanted to live, but I didn't know how with all of the symptoms that I had. That's why I do what I do. I don't want anyone else to have to experience what I went through and with that. I still encounter people who, through microaggressive and passive aggressive ways, would seek to diminish my, my efforts because of what they know about my diagnosis or because of how I present. And that's their problem. My job is to ensure that I am fulfilling my assignment organizationally, my job is to ensure that we are we advance the mission of education, support, advocacy, and public awareness so that all people affected by mental illness can live and build a healthy, fulfilling life. So sometimes that will mean me checking someone. Sometimes it will mean me reminding people of my, my degrees and my credentials and certificates. And I do that for the people who value those things. But on a day-to-day -day level, the experience that I'm most proud of having was the experience that almost took my life. It was through adversity 
the place where I struggled the most is what cultivated my growth. The place where I, I, I fumbled and stumbled, the place of pain, that's where my passion comes from. So if people see me speak and, you know, if I appear angry, I'm not, I'm just passionate because we're losing a person every 40 seconds in this nation to suicide. We're not getting the information to the people where they are. And so people are losing hope. My job is to empower hope. My job is to, in a moment, in the time that I have in front of someone, in the moment that someone is listening to me, my job is to infuse, empower, inject enough hope in them so they decide to live another day. That's my job. So can I take on people who want to discount me because they know I have a diagnosis? I'll do that any day. Do, can I take on people who want to discount me because I come in black skin, packaged in black skin as a woman? I'll take that on any day because I'm not just fighting for me. I'm fighting for all of the mothers and fathers and sisters and spouses and cousins and children that are losing hope every day. And it's um, so funny that you mentioned that, you know, I struggle with that, obviously dealing with my daughter, um, people who don't get it or who make offhand comments. Why do you think that um, understanding mental illness, you know, like the other day, Dak Prescott, who's a quarterback with the, with the Cowboys spoke openly about his battle with depression and the sportscaster uh, was very flippant about you know, well, I don't have sympathy because he's woke up and says he's depressed and they're looking for him to be a leader on this team and then tried to clarify it by saying he was talking about if he had pandemic depression, I didn't know that was a thing, um, that he should have sought treatment then. <laughs> like, why do you think people feel the need to make those types of judgments about someone who's coming forth to say, hey, this is my struggle. This is what happened is happening to me. I read his comments as all lives matter. See, we, and this is why it's important for us to, to recognize our own bias and to recognize that we all have privilege. Outside looking in, Dak, what are you complaining about? Okay, you're playing for one, you're playing in the NFL, all right, you're rich. We don't care about your depression or your problems or your troubles. You know, get a counselor, deal with that on your own time. Don't interrupt our game. We just want to make sure that your head is right so we can get to the Super Bowl. That's in essence what was being said. And it's very familiar to me because I've heard in my life, Natasha, you know, you're pretty and thin and smart. Like, what do you have to be depressed about? And so for those people that would make comments like that, that's the ignorance that, <laughs> that irks me because, again, Google is free. You can Google what is depression, what is anxiety. You can Google that. But it also speaks to our, our inability to empathize with another's pain. Being rich doesn't preclude you from mental illness or a mental health challenge. And we have many celebrities that we can reference for that. So if being rich was the 
the antidote to mental pain that's been, you know, blown out of the water. I think it's important for us to look at at the way we we view celebrities and athletes and and entertainers. We hold them to a different standard. We don't expect them to feel or to have pain. When the NBA uh, shut down a couple weeks ago, I saw that as they needed a mental health day. When you have an association of largely black men and they see another black man who looks like them be shot, do you expect them to just return to work the next day, business as usual? They need time to process that. They need time to process it regardless of their income. I needed time to process it. Like, here we go again. I needed some time to process that. And I think collectively as a nation, we have not done enough to place a value on mental and emotional health and how those will impact just about every area of your life. There are people who would be the the definition of poor, but are happy and optimistic and fulfilled. There are people who may be overweight and are happy and optimistic and fulfilled and no mental health challenges. But when you have a mental health condition, when you're living with a mental illness, that will affect your finances. That will cause you to question God. It will affect your physical health. It affects your social health. It affects every aspect of your life. But those aren't commercials that we're seeing. Why? And we hear it every day, you know, oh my God, this weather is so bipolar. Oh my gosh, I'm going out of date. I'm so anxious. And I know that some of those, you know, usage of those words are in a very uh, uh, out of context, lighthearted sense. But when there are people who are living real life with these conditions, it behooves us all to get the information necessary so we're not making such insensitive statements on a national scale. Absolutely. Um, it just it does really amaze me the number of people who still don't seem to understand or don't seem to care to understand, which I guess is part of the problem we're having with this pandemic. When you talk about lack of empathy, it's like, well, I'm not sick, so I should be able to go out here without a mask on, which heightens my level of of anxiety. I'm in the store and I'm like, you're just walking around here <laughs> with no mask on. Mm. So it, you know, just the level of just, well, I'm fine. So you get over it that we have in the United States. I'm sure maybe other places, but hey, I was born and raised here so I can talk about the U.S. of A. That's what I know. (laughs) And it is horrible (laughs) here in the United States. Um, So definitely, I guess for me to think that they're going to be empathetic about someone with a mental illness when you can't even put a mask on and run in the public and come out, I guess I'm just still hoping for better. And these are people who would also say all lives matter. All lives matter except when it threatens mine. See, because if, if we believe all lives matter, then when I go into a store, I'll wear a mask because you might be immune compromised. I'm going to wear one because 
you might have just had surgery or you may be, you know, um, have a condition. I legitimately have panic attacks when I wear masks for prolonged period of time. That would technically be a medical condition. And yet I wear it because I believe in safeguarding the we, even if it means the me is uncomfortable for a moment. So how do I adjust? Okay, and it's, I go to the grocery store with a list. You know, some of my friends have laughed at my list because my list is typed and it's in order of the aisles in the grocery store that I go to. And so I check off everything on my list and I can go through the aisles quickly. I'm in and I'm out. So that's how I prevent the panic attacks. If I'm there, you know, extended periods of time, that's when they're likely to, to occur. But this, we're talking about community. We cannot talk about community without talking about how we safeguard the health of, of everyone. You know, how do we, if we're talking about protecting, and I know there's a lot of talk about defunding the police, you know, If we're in a community and we're going to promote community, then we need to do what's best for the community, everyone in the community, not just a few. In Hillsborough County, where there's 1.4 million people with a stat of one in four, one in five, we can have as many as 300,000 people living in this county, living with a mental illness. They're part of the county. Our law enforcement many of whom contacted me after George Floyd because members of their family were experiencing increased anxiety with them going to work, not knowing what's going to happen. NAMI Hillsborough is for Hillsborough County and everyone who lives here. That means black, white, male, female, young, old, every religion, every profession. The only prerequisite for someone to be supported by NAMI is that you live with a diagnosis, you love someone with a diagnosis, or you want to improve the life for people who live with diagnoses. That's what county and community is. And I've been saying this for years. We've, there's been a breakdown in our community. We need to return to that because then people wouldn't be suffering in silence. People would be comfortable saying, you know what, since the pandemic, I know that I'm still working and I've been working at home even before the pandemic, but going to the grocery store really, you know, my blood pressure increases or I haven't been sleeping well, or you know what, I haven't wanted to do anything. We should be comfortable having those conversations because those are the conversations that inevitably save lives. And it may not be your circle. You know, Karen, the one thing that I've never heard a parent say after a child dies by suicide, I've never, ever heard a parent say, yeah, I expected that. Never. They're always shocked. They're always surprised. They always never knew, never saw it coming. So that lets me know that there's room for greater and increased education when it comes to mental health. That lets me know that when we have 22 veterans dying every day, 
That lets me know that there's some families who can better understand what their loved one went through and may be experiencing. That lets me know that there's some CEOs of organizations that need to stop speaking about work-life balance and actually ensure that it's a reality for their staff. This entire pandemic has evidenced to me that there are opportunities and a need for greater mental health education, support, advocacy, and awareness. There's a need for it. There's a need for it. Amen to that. I know, um, and, and I don't know where it comes from, even for me, you know, at work, I'm always worried about being transparent about my daughter. I mean, at any moment, something could jump off with her and I'm going to have to go and deal with whatever is happening with her. Um, and just always worried about, you know, it's easy for them to say, oh, your family comes first, but you know, you don't always actually feel that that's really the case. It's, it's just the thing to say, but when it's time to put that into practice, do people and corporations always do that so that you're able to, to really have that balance to do what you need to do um, when you have a family member that you're caring for who is struggling? Um, so that's absolutely true as well. Really people walking the walk and talking the talk as they say. Um, and there has been so much great information in this uh, time we've been on the phone, but if people are going to take away one, and I'm still saying phone, I'm so old school since we've been on, (laughs) on this podcast, but, um, if there were maybe two or three things that you really wanted people to take away from this conversation, what would those be? The first one is that mental health is health that you cannot take care of your physical body, your teeth, your finances, your spiritual life, your social life. You can't take care of all of those things and forget your mental health. Because if you lose your mental health, you lose all of that. That's the first thing. Mental health is health. The second thing is to be honest with where you are, honest with what you need, what supports, what boundaries you need to set, Yes, it may be uncomfortable for you to enforce and maintain those boundaries as other people adjust to them, but it's necessary. And then the last one would be have courageous conversations. And that may mean in a mental health context, that may mean asking someone, how are you? And how are you? How have you been doing since the pandemic? How are you dealing with unemployment? How are you dealing, you know, since the shutdown? Is there anything you need? You know, we're very accustomed to saying, hey, how are you? Hearing fine, and then moving on to whatever we want to do next. Very seldom have we been taught and encouraged to actually wait for the answer after someone says fine. I'd like to encourage people to wait for the answer and then ask a follow-up question. How are you doing? Fine. So how are you dealing with the pandemic? How, has, how are your children doing in school? How has it been with everyone being at home? Ask those questions. See where you can meet a need because we truly are in this together. And if we are all going to make it out of this pandemic, with our physical and our mental health intact, it's going to require a community, empathetic, compassionate approach. 
And that may mean going beyond your comfort zone. It may even mean going and stepping outside of uh, our comfortable bubbles to understand another's pain and experience. Thank you so much for your time, Natasha. This has been great. I will definitely put information about uh, how people can uh, become members of NAMI or reach out if they need to. Um, I'll be sure to give all that information um, in the show notes. If you have anything you want to hear us talk about on In My Shoes Today, you can uh, hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that's kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about. Natasha, again, thank you so much for your time today. Always love having you as a guest. And until we have a chance to speak again, be blessed. <laughs>